If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. This week on the podcast, I have Joe Piazza and Christine Pride, who are the co-authors of a new hit book, We Are Not Like Them. Now, Joe is a journalist, and she's been on Lit Up before. She's the author of nine books, including Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, The Knockoff, and How to Be Married. She's also a podcaster, and she hosts Under the Influence and Committed. Christine Pride is a longtime book editor who's now at Simon & Schuster. She also pens a regular column for Cup of Joe called Race Matters. We Are Not Like Them is told from the alternating perspective of two friends, Riley and Jen, whose friendship is altered by the shooting of an unarmed black teenager. Now, race has never come up between them before, but the deep bond they share is now severely tested when Jen's husband, a city police officer, is involved in the shooting. Riley, a newscaster and journalist, wrestles with the implications of this tragic incident for her black community, her ambitions, and her relationship with her longtime friend. Now, in this conversation, we talk about Joe and Christine's own interracial friendship and what led them to tell this timely and important story. We also chat about how on earth you write a book with another person and the kind of change they're hoping that will come from these conversations. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's hope no one prints in the office because I'm literally in the printing room. We live in closets. That is the dirty little secret of podcasting. Women in podcasting, we all live in closets. Yeah. Well, in my New York City apartment, I don't have a big enough closet to to actually get into. So, (laughs) What a joy to see these two faces opposite me, Christine Pride and Joe Piazza. I've been reading both of your work, listening to Joe a lot lately through the (laughs) pandemic, but Christine, since September of last year, reading your work. You have a column called Race Matters on Cup of Joe. And as a white Australian woman, I have needed guidance on how to be a better ally and don't want those words to be hollow. And the two of you have paired up to write an utterly extraordinary book called We Are Not Like Them. And firstly, just thank you so much for your time and for being here. We're so happy to be here. And thank you for those kind words. It really does mean a lot. I know. It was such a journey for the book to get here. And that now that it's coming out, just I we I I I tear up every time someone tells us they read it and they loved it. And we're just we're we're kind of in shock that it's finally here. Well, I think you know because you're journalists and you cover books and culture. Sometimes you're drawn to a book and you have your pen out ready to take notes and then you just find yourself utterly in a story. 
I got so emotionally swept up in this. I have the luxury of seeing you both. So we can each identify you voice by voice as we go through. Could you introduce yourselves quickly and maybe introduce one of the characters each, whoever you pick? Sure. Yeah. I'm Joe Piazza and I'm the co-author of We Are Not Like Them. And we we have two main protagonists in our book. One of them is a woman named Riley. She's a black woman and a newscaster who grew up in Philadelphia. And she's just moved back home to take that big job covering the city. And we start out just a couple of months after she's gotten back in town. I'm Christine Pride, and I'm the co-author of We Are Not Like Them. I'm going to try to emulate Joe and your podcast voice. I feel like you guys sound so great with your podcast voice. We have two main characters, and the story's told in alternating points of view. So Joe mentioned Riley, and our other character is Jen. And Riley and Jen have been friends uh, since they met in daycare. You know, they were three or four years old. So this is a lifelong friendship. And Jen, unlike Riley, has stayed in Philadelphia this whole time. And she's married to um, her husband, Kevin, who's a police officer, and they're expecting their first child. So she's about seven months pregnant when Riley moves back to town. So the novel as it opens, is sort of a reunion for their friendship and that this is the first time that they're going to have lived in the same place in many years. And so they're both so excited for this. And then something happens right away at the start of the story that sends their friendship and their lives into turmoil. To talk to your own friendship, as you said, you started the book in 2018, but you had been working together and formed a really strong friendship for years before that. How did you meet? I love, love the way that we met. Christine, who has been an editor for her entire career, was my editor on my last novel, Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win. And we worked really well together professionally And then just hit it off personally as well, which doesn't always happen in these kinds of relationships. But, you know, we had a lot of common interests and there was just kind of that spark there, that ineffable spark of like, oh, what this could be an an actual friend. And we started to spend a lot of time together. We worked on another book together, which was a very quickie novel for the TV show Younger called Marriage Vacation. And we did that in like four weeks. So... We knew that we could get something together really well and really quickly. And then we started having this idea that maybe we should work together on something else. And Christine kind of already had the seed of an idea for that. And so I'll let her take it from here. Yeah, I think what's interesting is Joe is one of those types of people. And I think when people meet us, it does seem like we've been friends for years and years and years. And in fact, we only met when I published her novel, Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, and formed a friendship. You know, it was a fast and furious situation. But I think that that then really informed the writing of our book, too, because like our characters who met when they were, Riley and Jen, as I mentioned, met when they were very small. And so they weren't having these conversations about race at five, at 10. I mean, what children are. And then they were long distance. So it had never been a true factor in their relationship. And similarly, though Joe and I didn't know each other since childhood, but since we were new friends, we also hadn't had these conversations about 
race and our experiences and so forth. And so we formed this friendship and then we started writing a book together and that both of those things sort of prompted us to have these kind of conversations. Well, like the characters in the book, I think many of us have interracial friendships, but I really identified with the fact that with my friends of color, we don't talk about race much. Yeah, because talking about race is hard. (laughs) It's really hard. And making sure you say the right words and you want to, and conveying what you mean. And yeah, that's why we, that's one of the reasons we wanted to write this book. There was a great piece in People magazine that helped launch the novel. And it talked about how interracial friendships are so much more unlikely than I would have imagined. The stat there was 75% of white people have no friends of another race, which seems absolutely shocking. This book, it's obviously not written towards a white audience or a black audience. And I think the two perspectives that you capture are so interesting. So everyone has a way into this book. But what was the impulse to make sure that these multiple perspectives were shown? I mean, it was really important to us from the beginning, and this is why we consciously chose to write a book together as opposed to each, you know, any one of us writing this book individually, we don't think would have resulted in as rich a book. And this was really, we, you know, we hope for readers a compelling opportunity to see something like this done on the page. And in that way, it was really important for us to have both perspectives and experiences of our characters authentically rendered and make this book as universal as possible, right? We were not writing for a black audience. We were not writing for a white audience, but we were writing with both in mind in terms of that by being authentic on the page for both our characters' experiences, then both and all audiences would come to the book, right? That there is in terms of the characters and their experiences, something and their relatability, there is something for everyone to grab onto, to hold onto, to connect with on the page. And we wanted to be really honest and get, that's why we, we made the chapters first person with the alternating perspectives. So you could get inside someone's head, but then also see what they actually say. Or don't say. (laughs) Or don't say. There's often such a disconnect, especially when it comes to talking about race. And so we wanted to show the reality that a lot of people grapple with when it comes to talking about this subject. And we were hoping that there was something, like Christine said, for everybody, that there was a character that Every person could see themselves in in this book or see a close friend or see a family member. So yeah, we we did not write this book for anyone. We I don't want to say we didn't have an agenda because we can talk about that, but we don't want to preach to anyone and we didn't want it to come across that way. So yeah, we really just wanted to we wanted people to fall in love with these characters and let that allow them to build empathy and sympathy and to relate. When you guys decided to take this project on, did you have any idea the type of difficult conversations you'd have to have as friends? For sure. It was a lot harder for both of us than we imagined it was going to be. And I think the two levels, it's sort of like when you're 
you know, husband and wife or husband and husband and wife and wife, and then you start a business together, right? You have to re-navigate and renegotiate the terms of your relationships for the business. It's the same way. Like we had to figure out how to be colleagues and how to be friends and to the degree those overlapped or needed to be kept separate. And that's something that took, I would say, months of conversations and trial and error and to figure out. And we also had to figure out logistically how to create a book together, you know, how our work style was going to be, how the technology was going to work. It was a process. I mean, I, I will, a journey, we like to say. A I journey, think journey is journey. better than process because yeah. journey mm -hmm. sort of has a start and an end. It suggests like, you know, some forward momentum, right? Which thankfully we had. And I think that Christine knew that we were going to dig into race and that that might not be easy because Christine, as many Black people do, often is the one always talking about race. And it's a privilege as a white woman to not have to think about race as often and every day. And honestly, before we started working on this book, which was in the years leading up to George Floyd, I, I hardly had to think about it at all. And I think it's important to admit that. So I think Christine knew that we were about to delve into some some stuff. And I was like, we talk about a lot of things. It's going to be fun. It's going to be easy. Why, why wouldn't we be able to talk about this? And it was, it, it got hard at times. It got very heated at times. And I remember saying to Christine, like, I don't talk about race that often. I really don't. And her saying, I don't think, I can't have a close friendship with someone who I don't talk about this with. And that moment, I remember crying after that because I was like, maybe we're not close friends and maybe we'll never get there. And maybe all of this is impossible. And we got through it. And I, I did, there were, there were times when we were first writing this and the book started, this process started a while ago where we did really separate our friendship and our work where it's like, all right, we will talk about work and maybe we're not getting along with work, right? But then we would, I would try to talk. I'd try to be like, do you want to see this cute picture of the baby? But now I think it's a lot better. Now we're we're pretty, it's gotten to a point where it's it's pretty seamless again. But that it was years. It was years of trial and error. I think that's so important to note because we really, if we were mission oriented at all about this book is that we wanted to show how two people can talk and address something really difficult in their relationship or their dynamic or uh, whatever that might be. I mean, in this case, I mean, Riley and Jen have other stuff too, but primarily this all comes to a head because of race. But the universal element here uh, that we hope readers grab onto is the fact that there can be lots of different things that can be the unspoken, unaddressed issue in a relationship and forcing our characters to address these things on the page in a way that we were also doing in real life, I think speaks to the authenticity of the character's journey, right? It wasn't some theoretical, entirely fictional, you know, at least the truth of the dynamic and what you have to go through. And so, you know, we practice what we preach in a way, right? In terms of saying like, you need to have these hard conversations. And we did, our characters do, and we hope that that is inspiration for people to do it as well. Well, definitely in these characters, Jen and Riley, they have these periods of avoiding the big conversation like you've just mentioned. And I think we've all 
been there, but I think what is so great about Riley calling out Jen is that we can have all these things in common. Like you say, we can talk about relationships, depression, being crazy busy at work. And yet as a black woman, Riley says to Jen, but this is this one thing you can never understand of me. And then what does Jen on the other side, how does she react to that, support that? You know, it takes an entire novel of these women that love each other so much trying to get closer to one another. That's just me talking about these wonderful people. But I'd love to really dive into Riley. She has her own such high expectations that her family have of her and of herself. And Christine, if you could talk about black excellence and the pressure that that puts upon you. For sure. I mean, I think it's so funny because, you know, in a lot of first novels, you're, for me, this is my debut. Joe has written a thousand books, but you know, your, your character is to some degree informed by your personal experience, right? I mean, that's what you draw from. Um, and so there's a lot of ways people always ask us, are you like Riley? Are you like Jen for both of us? And we brought both characters together and they are to be clear, neither one of us, but there are obviously are parts of these characters that um, are informed by our experience. And I think that is certainly one of them, like Riley's drive to, um, you know, sometimes as a black person, you're subconsciously even, uh, or not, or intentionally, you have this feeling of, um, you have to overcome all kinds of stereotypes. Like people are going to assume when they meet you, hear about you, know you, you are one way, whatever that way is, right? Whatever their preconceived notions and you're going up against that. And it feels like there's a lot of pressure to subvert expectations and that you're held to a higher standard. You know, I went to a pretty diverse by the time I got to middle school in suburban Maryland, my middle school and high school were more diverse and my elementary school was less so, but also I was in a lot of gifted and talented programs. Like at the time they had these like separate programs and whatnot. And those were, you know, all white spaces, even, even as a child. And I could sense people, teachers surprised if you use certain words or surprised to find out about your, that your parents were married or, I mean, and a lot of this is just unconscious. They wouldn't even say that they realized they were doing it. But so when you get those messages, particularly from a young age, your idea is to constantly then overcome them. So then this paper has to be perfect. This audition has to be perfect. This, you know, whatever it is has to be perfect. And as you said, that's exhausting. Like the quest to, you know, for perfection all the time is an exhausting one, but it's also a pattern that once you start, I'm generalizing here, but I feel like white people to have the luxury of feeling that they have lots of opportunities before them and doors will open and they'll have connections. And for a lot of black people, and again, I'm generalizing, but it feels like you only have one chance to do a lot of things, like to get this scholarship to college or to get into this program or to meet this person in this place, because these are not doors that are usually open, like that kind of thing. And so the pressure was always on to leverage or access whatever opportunity you can, right? And you can't mess it up because this will be 
the one chance that you have where, you know, your counterpart might have five, 10 chances. So there's a certain amount of the stakes feel very high for people and particularly black people in professional spaces to get the job, get the lead. And that, that does take its toll. And I think that's something that Riley experiences. She's so driven and so focused because if she's not, everything could fall apart. So she has to really, you know, stay on track and can't suffer any distractions. And we see the toll that takes on her over the course of the story. I definitely recognized her ambition, but then layer upon her race as well. And she's really trying to do her best, but, and is always trying to walk that fine line of maintaining her own integrity too. Um, right. And one thing I just want to add about that too is for, for my generation of black people, you know, this is, we are, have opportunities that our grandparents would never even have fathomed, right? And it's a little bit like the immigrant experience in that way and that there's a lot of pressure then to not squander those opportunities, right? Like my grandmother cleaned houses for a living and worked at JCPenney and, you know, I mean, one of my other authors wrote this way that black people are always making a way out of no way and, you know, that's what my grandparents did and so the fact that their granddaughter would be able to say even work at a major publishing house that would have been unthinkable and so you have to or work in a news station and so there's a certain amount of pressure then that you don't take it uh, take those opportunities for granted and that you feel a lot of pressure not to ruin it for the next generation right it's so easy to be like well that black woman didn't work out so we tried and you represented it, you feel representative of a whole group of people, and which is unfair by the reality in a lot of cases. And Joe, you moved back to Philadelphia where the novel is set. And I mentioned mm-hmm. before that Jen is a character that has married in to a family of policemen. Do you have any personal experience in understanding that ecosystem? Yeah. So when it comes to it's the it's kind of two separate answers. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I went to college here. I moved away for a long time and recently moved back. But Philadelphia is very much a part of the fabric of this book. And I will say I grew up in a very segregated white suburb right outside the city. Spent a lot of time, you know, with a lot of very white families from Northeast Philadelphia. And a lot of those experiences are what I drew on to create Kevin, our cop's family. And they say things with regards to race that come across as quite shocking when you read them in 2021. And I I do remember they, they shocked one of our, one of our white editors when she read them. And I'm like, I've heard people say this. And I had a friend read the book the other day who also grew up in the northeast in northeast Philly and he's like these people are my cousins this is how they talk and i i wanted to and there are also people who would never call themselves racist that's the funny thing they're like i don't see race i am colorblind but the way they talk about race you're like you you clearly are are racist and so we wanted to get some of those things on the page they were absolutely this is a world that i experienced and but i also have friends who are cops and we we wanted to make our cop character, our characters, 
very nuanced and very human. We didn't want any of this to be <laughs> black and white to, you know, make a really bad pun here because we wanted to show that everything that happens is complicated. Nothing is as straightforward as you think it is. So we interviewed so many police officers. We interviewed police officers' wives and other members of police officers' families. We talked to one therapist who works with police officers after officer-involved shootings because we wanted to get that nuance and that reality on the page. And you know, I think that I do think Christine had a harder job in this book. And there were times when I had to pull back too, because everything that she just talked about, I I wanted what she just talked about on the page. But you also, as a co-author and a friend, you don't want to mine someone else's trauma, right? So I was asking her, I'm like, but but how did this feel? And what was that like? And how did you react to these things? And that's that's no fun for anyone to have to relive the difficult parts of their lives. But I wanted to get all of that on the page when it when it came to Riley. And for me, it was really looking inside my world and seeing where all of my blind spots are and how white privilege and privilege generally has informed my life and bringing that to our white character. I think one thing that's interesting, I just want to, can I just piggyback on that? Because I think one thing that's really interesting in terms of our decision to write this book together is that there are converse in real life there are conversations that we would be a part of or overhear that the other would never be able to mm -hmm. access or overhear right and so to the degree that i wanted to bring kevin's family alive on the page you know as we did i would be presuming a lot and I might be getting it right but I'd also be having the pitfall of she is making assumptions because she wouldn't be experiencing this whereas even if it it it, it ended up being kind of the same on the page of what I would imagine this this reality of Joe hears things in white spaces that people would never most people would never say in front of me or if they knew uh, my myself or another black person was listening or you know, black people having candid conversations about white people, which are endless and intense, and she would never be privy to that, right? And so I think by we can really see both sides by understanding that we've had access to these different experiences. Some of the most difficult scenes I found to read were with Jen's extended family in those living rooms. I feel like it must have been very difficult, yeah, to inhabit Kevin and his story. Christine, I wanted to pull out a quote that I took from one of your Cup of Joe Race Matters columns. And it was, for a black person to make a white friend, it is to take a specific risk and a leap of faith. Now, in the novel, these two, our two characters have known each other from such a young age. Kids just fall in love, don't they? Which is what is so beautiful about them and about this friendship. But can you both talk about particularly that quote, maybe Christine knew first, because that is a leap that no white person ever even has to think about that. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, it's funny because we think of our characters, Riley and Jen, as real people. And, you know, one question we always ask ourselves is, would Riley and Jen 
be friends if they met now? And I think we all have a friend in our life from childhood that we reconnect with or, you know, that we're still in touch with. And it's like, you know, have we become so different that we wouldn't connect in this way now? And I think that that's relevant here because they didn't have to have these conversations about race. And Riley meeting Jen as an adult would have those conversations about race the same way that Joe and I had to have those conversations about race. And the biggest pitfall or area of concern, or I don't know how better to say it for a black person in approaching these conversations is you don't know what the reaction is going to be. Certainly Riley felt this way in the book, which is, I think, why she avoids a lot of these conversations. And that's mirrored in real life in terms of, is somebody going to be dismissive, defensive, fragile, right? There's a range of responses that are almost cliche in how much you can expect them, one of each or a combination thereof. And that is something that can prove to be a deterrent. Why am I going to bother to do this if I'm going to be met with X, Y, Z? It's almost more hurtful to have somebody say, you're overreacting, or no, that's not true, or oh my God, and then burst into tears, right? (laughs) Or any range of those. And so that's what I mean by a leap of faith, that you have to sort of have the groundwork to get to know somebody before you're even willing to broach it, to have some sense that you're not going to be caught off guard by what they're going to say or do. Because it's actually what they say or do in that moment that is the is going to make or break a relationship. It's, it's almost more your reactions to things as a white person to a black person is, is more influential than even saying or doing the wrong thing initially, right? Because that can be corrected or you can learn from that. But if I say to you, oh, I feel like you've done the wrong thing, X, Y, Z, and the reaction is one of the ones I described, then that is more damaging. I have to admit that I see myself in Jen and I don't like it. But I also think if there's a PSA here, I do think that white people need to get more comfortable with talking about race. I mean, it's just something that black people do constantly from birth. Part of that is you have to be prepared as a black person in society for what you're going to encounter. That's just, you know, I have a six-year-old goddaughter and I see this playing out, you know, in her life now that she's starting to go to school and kids look different, kids are treated differently, et cetera, et cetera. But it is a muscle to some degree. Like it's always hard to do something at the beginning, but the more you do it, the more comfortable you feel doing it, right? And so it becomes uh, a domino effect, I guess, that that just practicing talking about race and being open to talking about race makes it less scary or uncomfortable. And I, I think to your point, being curious about the history of the country we live in. Joe, maybe you can talk to this aspect of the conversations that you and Christine had, and it's something that's embedded in the book that I'm taking away, is that it's our job as a white woman to probe, to ask, can we have a conversation about race? If you're talking to a friend, that friend deals with this every day. How can I probe respectfully, but in an open way. I say this a lot. I think one of the best gifts that Christine gave me in our friendship and through this process was 
the gift of grace. And there's a lot of me that was terrified to say the wrong thing or to bring certain things up because I would mess it up. And, you know, I have good intentions. I want to talk, but am I going to say something that's just wrong? And am I going to feel stupid for doing that? And again, that is a a sort of white fragility. But at the same time, I think it's a way that many white people do think they're nervous, right? And Christine gave me the grace to kind of wade my way through some of these conversations that I had never had before. And that's another thing that we just really want to accomplish with this book. If you don't have a friend of another race or not, or a close friend, or if you don't know how to talk about this, you can read this book and you can talk about what our characters are doing. You can talk about their conversations. You can take this out of the personal so that it's kind of a starting point to have difficult conversations about race and start to probe and start to, to go deeper than you would have before because you might've been nervous. And with our own friendship, you know, I needed to know, and I approach, I'm a journalist, right? I still think of myself as a journalist, even though I've written a bunch of novels at this point. So I report my fiction. I ask questions, so many questions. And there really did get to be a place where Christine's like, okay, enough, enough with like asking me like everything you've ever wanted to know about black history from, you know, the big bang until now. And I had to go off and do my own research and my own stuff for that. So I I needed to know when to ask the questions and then also when to back off. And I think that that's also really important for people that are trying to be good allies. Your black friend can't be your Black Lives Matter professor. That's also an uncomfortable relationship that nobody wants to find themselves in. Mm. Talking about this writing relationship Christine, you have been an editor for 20 years and publishing has been notoriously a whitewashed industry and place. What was it like to trust Joe with co-authoring something that is really important, needed, timely and necessary? Well, I, as you said, I've been an editor for... <laughs> 20 years makes me sound old, but it has been that long. I started when I was 10. But, (laughs) you know, I've always taken storytelling and the power of storytelling really seriously. I mean, obviously, there's a range of books published and we need all kinds of reads. But what I've always tried to do with the writers that I've published are published enduring stories with themes that really hit people emotionally and matter and make you think about your life in a different way because it's a lot of time and energy to publish a book, let alone write one. And if that's not the goal, I can't get motivated, right? It has to it has to have consequence. And so certainly I knew Joe shared that philosophy in terms of both being a reader and a writer and that she, we both had a mission-oriented approach to this. And I think that kept us going, honestly, when it was hard or when we wanted to give up or when we had so many obstacles and twists and turns. But we kept thinking that this book matters, right? We weren't just writing some twisted thriller, which no offense against twisted thrillers, we all love them, but we were trying to do something 
really hard and that when we got to the other side would feel really meaningful. And I think that now that we're in a place where we're getting reader responses and the book is about to go on sale and we can see that readers are reacting the way that they, that we dreamed this whole time that they would in terms of connecting with the story on a, a deeper level and having a book that feels like it would be impacting them personally in a way that will be really valuable is I could get Terry talking about it. It's really just a gratifying feeling, especially when you're in a vacuum doing it and we had each other to talk to. But now that it's about to be out in the world to know that we accomplished that is just, it's it's a little bit overwhelming to be honest, both as a writer and as an editor, because that is the kind of joy you chase, right? And, and want to create. Well, I also think, I know we've talked about how difficult race is to talk about, and but your book is filled with so much love, love that these characters have for one another, but the love that is within the family and also how we create families through friends and particularly Jen, the family that she craves is Riley's family. And that was a beautiful choice. And I'd love you to talk about that. I want to have Gigi's cinnamon miracle (laughs) bread. And I could almost just smell that with the butter and the cinnamon and the sugar and the comfort that that provided. You guys have to have that at one of your events. I was just going to say that. Wafting (laughs) through. We need to have miracle bread at a launch. We do. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, but how important it was to counterbalance, I wouldn't say hope, but love in the novel. So important. I mean, it was, it was everything for us. This friendship is the backbone of the book as our friendships with the women in our lives are the backbones of our lives. We say this a lot, but We see so many, I frankly think too many novels that deal with romantic relationships, whereas I think that friendships, they are just the things that keep us going, that get us through. And we wanted the friendship almost to be a third character in this book. Like if you're rooting for anyone, anything in this book, you're rooting for the friendship to survive. And it's it's a book, it is a book about race and it is a book about social justice and police shootings and violence. But first and foremost, we want it to be a book about friendship and hope. And also, as you said, family, I think family is important. And I'm I'm happy that you acknowledged Jen's love for Riley's family because that was such an intentional choice of ours to subvert what we, I mean, our, our whole goal with this book was to to avoid common tropes, right? I mean, so much of literature just falls into the same kinds of storytelling and a lot of it is just unconscious. Like this is how these things happen. The white family saves the black kid over and over and over and over from the beginning of time till now. And so we really wanted a different perspective, right? And so I think a lot of readers will will notice a difference even if it's subconscious like huh something about this oh you know like the the black family is the stable loving family and the white family is not and you to this day rarely see a lot of these things flipped on their heads like riley is a little more driven and successful than jen it's not jen bringing riley along or being a model of you know 
virtuous behavior, that kind of thing. And so we, we really made a conscious choice to make those narrative decisions. You started the book in 2018, and I can imagine that there you had an idea of the ending and went, don't worry, we're not giving that away for anyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm sure there is a hope that the world would have had progress, and yet there was just devastation after devastation in the last few years of mm-hmm. more black and brown women and men being murdered at the hands of police officers. Was the ending of the book intentional and informed by the the days we live in now? You know, there and we're not giving anything away because we wrote a book about an officer-involved shooting of an unarmed black child. And so the end of the book absolutely has to have consequences. Now, when we started writing this book in 2018, the consequences were very different. And that's to say there were rarely any actual consequences. And so we wrestled with in the very, in not even the early drafts of this book, in the final drafts of this book, with what would be satisfying to the reader who wanted consequences for the officer that shot this child and what would be real. And we turned in a draft of this book before George Floyd was murdered. And that ending was different than the ending that you'll see on this on the page now. But what we want, because we took it back over the summer and we're like, we we do need to change the ending a little bit. But what I think is still striking about the ending is that it rings true, but in reality, there are not enough consequences to these kinds of actions and this kind of violence. It would be so impossible. We had so many conversations. Should we send these officers to prison for the rest of their lives? Like we just, we don't think that would ever happen in reality. And so how can we write that in our fiction? The one last question I ask everyone on Lit Up is what lights you up? Mm. I'm going to say very stay very on brand here and say books, honestly. And it's funny because at the beginning of the pandemic, I lost my ability to read, which was really scary for me as a professional reader and editor. I just did not have the attention span and I couldn't, whatever it was, it was no fault of the books themselves. I tried lots of books and I just, I could not, I was too distracted and upset to immerse myself in a story. But the silver lining of that is, once I got my ability to read back in the same way, you know, I'm a book a week kind of gal, I, I remembered why I loved it so much. And, and I think that that's actually really grounded me even in a different way during the last couple of years. That's been so hard for so many different reasons. And writing a book for the first time, I felt lit up and inspired by seeing other people do it, right? It's 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 so much harder than it looks. And so I just have so much more respect even after all these years for people who do it, who devote their lives to it. And and it just lights me up to think that all these people are so inspired, so disciplined, so creative, have such imaginations, do so much research to tell stories. I think it's amazing. 
That's the best answer. Me too. I think it lights all three of us up, that realm. And I can only imagine that that experience you've gone through will make you an even better editor if that's even possible. I think so. Definitely I have a different frame of mind in, in, in working with writers now, just understanding the pressures and the mental and emotional dimension of it. I don't think you can really understand until you do it yourself. And so I do think I have a much better understanding of what writers are thinking and feeling kind of behind the scenes that I didn't appreciate as much before when I was writing them 12-page editorial letters. <laughs> Asking them to go back in, like you did for Joe, I'm sure. Definitely. I would wonder what that first editorial letter was like. on your Probably novel, overwhelming. <laughs> so, so overwhelming. I think that, yes, Christine has learned a lot of tips and tricks about how to edit her writers now from, from our process. And my thing that lights me up is, very, it's similar to Christine's, but it's just good storytelling in general. I mean, I've run the gamut um, of storytelling as a career from daily newspaper writer to magazine writer to digital writer to podcaster to novelist. And I just, the basis of all of it and what I want to do and what I love every day is powerful storytelling. And that's something that Christine and I thought a lot about with this book, because we both really believe that powerful storytelling is what can bring people together and start awesome conversations. So that's what, yeah, that's what gets me out of bed every day. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Your novel, We Are Not Like Them, is going to change the world. I think it's just obviously exploding already, but for all the right reasons, it's such an important book. And it's it's helped me have these conversations already in my personal life. And I think it's going to be just special for so many of us. So thank you so much for coming on Lit Up. We loved being here. This was such a great conversation. Thank you for having us. We loved it so much. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Joe Piazza and Christine Pride. Their book, We Are Not Like Them, is out now, and there's a link to purchase it on our website, lituppodcast.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rudofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. <laughs>